Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Marked Safe, tales of your very favorite and most beloved man-made disasters. On Marked Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Marked Safe. Well, that was a fucking mess. <laughs> Jesus. Hurricane life. Still. Yeah. Okay, so give us a State of the Union. All right, State of the Union. I wake up. I triage the day. <laughs> it still sucks. They lifted the boil ban on my water, but it is still yellow. I don't care. I still take a bath in it, which is probably the reason why I still have the shit so bad today. Oh, no. <laughs> I still and have that's no hurricane life, folks. <laughs> I still have no internet access, so we have spent the better part of an hour trying to hotspot it to record this episode. Yes. And what an episode it is. It's going to be a good one. I'm actually really excited about your episode. You don't know that. It's a lot. Well, I, I know the topic. It's a lot. Do you know the Twisteroo in that story? I assume you do. Yeah, I know the okay. Twisteroo. Okay. But we're, we're but I'm not going to say anything. I didn't think no. you were. Okay. All right. Do you have Florida men in front of you or? I was so smart this morning. I woke up and I screenshotted the shit out of it. Good for you. Good for you. I was thinking ahead. So I didn't because I woke up at 3.45 a.m. to finish this episode. (laughs) I'm so tired. (laughs) Yeah, I I did screenshots. I'm very proud of myself. I, I planned. I planned today. Just because, I don't know, I had a sinking feeling I might have some issues, and here we are. So, Florida man. Florida man. Florida man drives Cadillac from sunroof down a highway, says he'd rather go to jail than back to his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Florida man arrested after refusing to remove, quote, I eat ass sticker from his truck. (laughs) I can't believe they asked him to in Florida. Yeah, I actually screenshotted that news article just in case. <laughs> um, you know, the first one, it's not going to win. It's not going to win. It has too much going on. What is happening with a, a roof and a Cadillac? And He's like and- hanging out of the sunroof. And I'm assuming he's driving with his feet because mm-hmm. it says his arms are outstretched and... Mm-hmm. I don't care for it. And also, I don't really care for that whole, you know, boomer trope of, I hate my wife, but I have my wife. Like, just stop it. Yeah, it's really rude. Yeah, I'm I'm over it. I'm unimpressed by it. But the other guy, love his energy. He eats ass. He's proud of it. He's not ashamed. Yeah. He probably fucking loves his wife. He's eating her ass. He got arrested for it. For the ass or the sticker? (laughs) the sticker okay well i mean he has integrity it sounds like he will not no, i be mean kink shamed no i mean he he will not he will not no, i respect uh, it it's freedom of speech man yeah i mean i don't think that's the decision i would have made but i respect it i don't Can imagine that's why one. you go to jail imagine i i wonder what reception you would get in jail when you get there like will the other people be like come the fuck on man why 
you don't have to be here <laughs> seriously or will you be a hero oh definitely a hero <laughs> this has big hero energy but then i mean if you saunter into a prison and your whole shtick is that you eat ass that could go a lot of ways <laughs> it could go a lot of ways I don't but know. if you like eating ass or having your ass eaten, <laughs> <laughs> I don't see it going a bad way. That's fair. That's fair. I truly don't. That is fair. Yeah, no, that's an easy one. This has been okay. a lot of easy ones. The next round, once we get to the second level brackets, is going to be a bitch. Yeah, it is going to be a bitch. Most of these have been easy peasy, lemon squeezy. I do have lemonade, by the way. I got frisky and got strawberry lemonade. Uh, okay, so we have been out, well, I don't know what our status is, right? I don't even think our Wendy's is open right now, but we have been out of regular lemonade for quite some time, so I've been having to get the strawberry. I don't mind it. I like it. I don't mind it. I don't think I've ever ordered it on purpose, but sometimes I steal the audio guys. But we we went to McAllister's with the kids a couple days ago, and I got a strawberry lemonade, and it was so good. So I kind of had a hankering for it again, and, you know, Wendy's lemonade never lets me down. No, not at all. Never. So... You want to get into it? Yeah, let's jump into it because I do not trust this hotspot. No, I don't either. I feel like this is a record small number of banter for this stage yeah. of things. Do you hate banter? Oh, Go hold on. Her- <laughs> I was about to acknowledge the fact that we don't hate each other. Can we? And it's not like, you know, we're on the verge of breaking up and that's why we're not having extended banter this time. Can we talk about your divorce? Oh my gosh, can we please? I'm so glad that you brought this up because I didn't write on my whiteboard. And plus, I've moved locations trying to get a better hotspot in here. Um, yeah, let's talk about my d- divorce. It's it's very important. Okay. Listen, I never got a divorce. Okay. I so never if you broke didn't, up with my husband. You didn't catch it, everybody. In the last episode, Melanie said that this. All the recent happenings and her renewed bond with her husband is a great reminder of why they're back together. <laughs> and the audio guy and I were like, record scratch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told Cody and he just laughed so hard. He's like, I must have missed the memo. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we didn't break up. We never broke up. It's not a Freudian slip. <laughs> I think it's just like, I mean, we were like, literally back together like join forces back together back in action like action we're back back together yeah as opposed to being in two different states i think that's where my brain was and it just came out all bleh yeah you know what we should try what we should try dropping just a little tidbit of fake drama into every episode like just just casually mention something like you and your husband getting back together or something i don't know we'll have to brainstorm what and just just give the people something to talk about let's give i knew you were gonna say that (laughs) (laughs) i like it i like some idea i love fake drama i found myself lately because now i'm like me and tiktok we're just like the best friends (laughs) and uh i have found myself on this weird side of tiktok where it's like um the fake drama stuff the storylines i'm like oh this is is this real is this not real i don't know i I don't know i let me tell you i am beyond fascinated by other people's for you pages because I think everyone's TikTok experience is something completely different. Mine's weird. I basically send you everything. I came across a really 
bizarre one the other day and then i was like okay i probably should put this down for a little bit (laughs) um it's this guy and he was like cooking a chicken and then there was like i want to say like a sardine head that he put Mm. on top of it and it was Mm. a total like frankenstein meal he took chocolate and nuts and like blended them together and then like poured it on the plate but it just looked like doo-doo it was like very angry food presentation i don't know it was definitely it it sounds right up your alley to me and i feel like tiktok knows that and that's why it's there but if you could see my disgusted face right now oh disgusted i mean it like it almost did me in (laughs) nothing does that's bad yeah i mean I had armadillo eggs for dinner last oh, night. Oh, <laughs> we were so upset. <laughs> we were so upset, both of us. It wasn't and then you even just realized me. that I googled it. It's so yummy. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fine, but now that I know you're not eating, I didn't put it past you at all. I was, I was here with the audio guy, and I was like, Melanie bought armadillo eggs for dinner. And she's cooking them right now. And he was like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) We were really distraught. Okay, so let's get into this. I have two substantial disclaimers that I need to put at the top of this. So I really want to get into it. So I have time for the disclaimers. Um, The first one is called, there are a lot of people in this story. Okay. And a lot of them are kind of similar to each other. (laughs) Like there will be two people who are very similar and they have two sets of parents who are very similar to each other. And then there's they each have a sister and the sisters, you know, there's really nothing available in the world to significantly distinguish those characters. And like none of the names are really overly distinctive names or anything. So I'm not going to lie. It can be a little bit hard to keep track of who is who. All right. So pay attention. It is an incredible story. And it is worth it, I promise. But like this, you know, as a podcast listener, there's a range of distractedness. (laughs) Like, you know, there's ones where I'm not that concerned about following along. Maybe I know the story. Maybe I don't care that much. But, you know, I'll do that while I'm cleaning the kitchen and sporadically texting. And my kids might interject sometimes with questions. But then there are other ones for, you know, when I'm driving and focusing or, you know, doing something, crocheting and focusing. You know what I mean. Right. This is probably more of a pay attention episode. Because it would be easy to get lost, but I promise it's worth it. (laughs) Disclaimer two is so hard. (laughs) So we've talked about this a couple times before. I feel like I've talked about it more than you have, but I think it's come up for both of us. Which is the the dilemma, the ethical dilemma, I would almost even say journalistic dilemma, if I may be so pompous, of how when you have a connection to a story or there's an aspect of it that overlaps with your life or something. Right. You don't want to make it about you, obviously, but you're the one right. telling it. <laughs> right. So you still want to like... So it's a, it's a very hard balance to find sometimes. So I will just say at the top of this, I have no connection whatsoever to the story other than some geographical similarities. But there's a coma in the story. And there's a lot of discussion of the process of coming out of a coma. And which you have which I have done firsthand experience. With. Yes. Yes. And I will say it has been six years since my coma. And this I think story involves the most 
in-depth specific discussion of just the stages and the processes and what it is like and what it's like for the family and what it feels like. But there's actually not that much about what it feels like. It's it's pretty much from the family's perspective, and that's fine because that's pretty much who's telling the story. But there's so much stuff where I'm like, yes, I know exactly what that's like. I know. Like, that's such right. a weird experience and I've had it. So it's going to... I think it's okay, though. I mean, okay. it would be like when we talk about a helicopter crash and yeah. I use Cody's point of view. Yeah. Because he's yeah. a pilot. He's never been in a crash, but you, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Like I think in this situation, it's okay. Okay. So I just, I want to do a disclaimer at the top, which is that I, I hope it's okay. And I, I'm doing my best. And if anybody is listening to it and is like, wow, listen to this little armadillo making it all about herself, know that I, I'm at least trying to be very cognizant of that because I have nothing right. to do with the story. Nothing whatsoever. Um, I just have had a coma. <laughs> And right. uh, it is a weird experience, and it is not an experience that is talked about that much. And I mean, comas aren't that freaking rare, you know. It's a, it's definitely something that happens. But in my experience and my encounters with the world, it's almost always talked about from the point of view of the loved ones, or a soap opera, or a soap opera, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. And I have found that most people who've had comas don't really want to talk about it that much. And I'm let sure me tell you, traumatic. there's a fucking reason. Right. I don't really want to talk about that much because it is really unbelievably traumatic. But, you know, it comes up a lot. So that's all I'm going to say about that. I've said what I need to say. But those are my two big disclaimers. Stay with me. And I'm so not trying to make this about me. <laughs> you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So. I'm going to tell you about each of these families in turn. And I, when I was starting out in the story and the names were less familiar to me, I was kind of trying to find ways to group the different family members' names together so I could keep straight which family was which. So I don't know what name associations you, Melanie, or you, the listener, might have in your head, but here we go. Susie and Don Van Rijn lived in Caledonia which is a tiny village in the southwestish part of Michigan. It was an idyllic place to live with an old-fashioned downtown, not much more than a thousand residents, virtually no crime. Susie worked in a hair salon. They had four young adult children, Lisa, Kenny, Mark, and 22-year-old Laura, who was the baby. Laura was a joyful child. She was easy to get along with, always giggling, soaking up the attention of the people around her. She just loved to be where the action was. And she kind of was the action. She was the youngest, but she was well on her way to a happy adult life. She had started dating her boyfriend, Aaron, at 19, and their family saw them as very likely to marry when they were just a little bit older. But for right now, she was attending Taylor University. That was a little Christian college in Indiana. It's actually... I. I don't know if I've heard of it. I don't know that I would necessarily remember it if I'd heard of it, but it's actually just about 30 minutes north of me. Oh, yeah. Close. Yeah. And one of these families was actually born and like originated and started out their life in the city I live in now, which is a very small city. So that's neat. Laura was a senior. She was majoring communications with a minor in public relations, and she only had three weeks to go until graduation. So we're going to have two girls in this story. Laura is the older one. She's close to graduation. Now on to the other family. 
In Colleen Sirik's mind, she lived a charmed life. She had a happy marriage with her husband, Newell. She loved where she lived. She loved her job as a teacher. She loved her two adult children, Carly and Whitney. Sometimes she couldn't help but feel that it was all too good to be true, like the other shoe would eventually drop and she would have to pay her dues in misery. But for a long time, that didn't come. Her daughter, Whitney, was a joy to raise, the kind of person who made everyone around her feel special and important. The family had settled in gorgeous Gaylord, Michigan, which was about three hours north of where the first family, the Van Rines, lived. Whitney was 18, so she's the younger one, and she hadn't been sure what college to attend. And this part, I don't love this, so I'm just going to say this without comment, and you'll know why in a second. Her parents had both attended Taylor University, and her older sister Carly was already there, but she kind of wanted to do her own thing. Whitney wanted to buck tradition. But her parents told her that if she attended a Christian college, they would cover two thirds of her tuition. But if she chose a secular college, they would cover nothing. Mm. Yeah. So (laughs) moving on, (laughs) make of that what you will. She picked Taylor University, (laughs) the Christian college, because college is expensive. Expensive as fuck. Yeah. Five hours from home. Let's have free college. Yeah. Let's get political. Fuck it. Uh, So... With both girls from both of these families, Laura and Whitney, both girls were at Taylor, and there was some overlap in their friend circles, but they didn't really know each other. And there's not really a lot to say about their encounters or interactions during their time there, because there just wasn't really any. Laura was, like I said, just about to graduate, and Whitney had really just started. But... On April 26, 2006, the weather was nice and cool, and some of the students from Taylor were going to ride up to Fort Wayne, which is about an hour and a half north for the day, to do some work helping to set up a banquet. I guess there were two 16-passenger vans. I don't don't know how full the other one was. Laura and Whitney were both going to go along on the trips. Both of their moms had been trying to call them that day, not for any important reason. They just, I think, were in frequent contact, but neither one of them had been able to connect. Colleen had been playing phone tag with Whitney all day. Susie had called Laura at about eight and didn't reach her. At that point, both girls and some other students and faculty were in the van beginning their trip back to campus. So they, you know, you you can imagine they were probably talking to each other, everything, not answering their phones. And this is 2006. While Laura's parents were trying to reach her, the van was traveling down 69 carrying nine people, including the driver. As it did, a semi-driver named Robert fell asleep at the wheel and crossed the median, tearing apart the grass and dirt with the truck's tires, and it it sideswiped the school van. The side of the van was just ripped open like a sardine can. Passengers were thrown in every direction across the interstate, Five of them were dead before emergency responders could even arrive. Laurel Erb, Brad Larson, Betsy Smith, Monica Felver, and one other girl. The degree of injuries among the four victims who were not killed immediately varied, but one was in particularly bad shape. She was found nearly dead. She had been thrown 50 feet from the van. She had to be life lighted to a trauma center, and that was Laura Van Ryn. So, okay. Remember Carly, Whitney's sister, who also attended Taylor? Yeah. She was the one who wanted to go, but her parents, you know, were only going to pay if she went somewhere Christian and her sister was already going to Taylor. Right. So the sister Carly was playing tennis on campus when Carly's boyfriend Ben pulled up and told her that there had been a car accident and he thought Whitney might have been involved. 
Carly called Whitney and got no answer. So she called her again. No answer. She called. She called. Information about the accident was starting to spread, and more people realized that Carly's sister might be hurt, and the buzz and anxiety on campus grew. People were telling her that there were fatalities, but there were survivors. She knew the situation was not good at all, and around 10 p.m. she called home. Her parents, Colleen and Newell, were on the phone with each other because Newell was on a trip with his church rebuilding houses after Katrina, but the call waiting beep got annoying because it, they one of them would get a call, and then two seconds later, the other one would get a call, and then back to the first one, someone was just bouncing back and forth between them. Right. And they figured it was one of their daughters just needing some bullshit. <laughs> and right. they were like, no, we haven't talked all day. We really want to catch up. But it just it got irritating. So Colleen finally clicked over. And Carly told her, there's been an accident at Taylor with one of the vans. Mom, you just need to pray. Oh, my and- gosh. Do you, ever, do you have, like, a code, like, with tag or anything like we have a three call rule like hmm. if i call you three times in a row like no i don't think that i mean i i know we don't but i think that it's because with the nature of his job if he can be looking at his phone he can respond but right i mean i could call a hundred times and if he can't look he can't look right so i guess if there was a true emergency i would just have to call his actual job right uh which I hope I never have to do because that would suck. Yeah. When you call an RN at their actual job, you know shit is bad. (laughs) Right, right. So Carly and the other students were all kind of herded into the chapel to wait. While the Sirik family was praying and waiting for information, the Van Ryan family got some in the form of a call from a hospital in Fort Wayne. The voice on the other end of the line said, we have your daughter, Laura, in the hospital and she's been in an accident. Susie looked at her husband, Don, and said, I think you'd better get on the phone. He did, and they told him his daughter, Laura, was in the hospital in critical condition. They told them that they should head to Fort Wayne, two and a half hours away. And in a matter of minutes, they were flying down the road, fielding calls from the hospital the whole way. The hospital told them that Laura was severely injured. She was in grave condition. She was unconscious. They told her parents that they needed to drill a hole in Laura's skull and insert a tube to monitor her intracranial pressure, and they needed their permission to do so. Susie and Don said yes. They were just, at this point, having to make life-or-death decisions they had never dreamed they'd need to make just minutes ago as they're speeding through traffic, praying frantically, trying to call her boyfriend Aaron, trying to shave any amount of time off of this hours-long drive. They made it to the hospital after 1 a.m. Her boyfriend Aaron got there a little while later, They burst into the lobby to find a crowd of Laura's friends waiting. They met the paramedic in there who had cared for her, and he talked about how they'd gone about stabilizing her and preparing her for transport. He said it was the worst accident scene he'd ever seen. There was a woman who lived in Fort Wayne, but she was from their hometown who owned a Little Caesars there, and she brought them, like, more than 20 pizzas that night. Along with water and other drinks. Yeah, and I mean, it was just packed with college students, and then they ended up sharing some of it with other just ICU families who were there. And yeah, it sounds like it all. I raised. love that detail. I know. I knew you would. <laughs> so they waited and waited. Information was slow to trickle in. And they were told that Laura may die within hours. And if she lived, she may not be Laura anymore. Oh, <sighs> which uh, it gets me because I told my husband that too. <laughs> right. As desperate as their situation was, Colleen and Newell were in their own form of hell. They had no information. 
This is the other family who's not waiting at the hospital on Laura. This is Carly's family. They had no information. Newell was helpless. He was stuck a thousand miles from home for his church trip with no way to do anything. He didn't want to distract the people who had more access by blowing up their phones, so he just waited for his wife to call, but she didn't know anything either. Until the phone finally rang. Colleen picked up the phone to find the coroner on the other end. Oh, fuck. They told her they were sorry, but that Whitney had been involved and she had not survived. They told her that she needed to get to the hospital to make arrangements. Colleen didn't really have anything else to say or ask at that point. I mean, the news had been delivered, and now all she really wanted to do was call Newell. He answered the call, and she said, Newell, I'm sorry, she's gone. And that was when she broke down. Mm. I'm not going to make it through this. (laughs) No. Uh, They were left to deliver the news to Carly, but Colleen couldn't stand to make the call. Their pastor made the call for her. These, all of these people are profoundly Christian. It's, right. I, I feel like I mention it all the time, but if you read original sources, believe me, I'm mentioning it 5% of how often it is actually there. Carly was already at the hospital waiting for news, and she knew as soon as she answered the phone that there was only one reason for him to be calling her. She dropped her phone and fell to the ground screaming. Her boyfriend kicked a chair. She had been so close to her sister's body in that hospital all along, and she she couldn't stand to see it when she was given the option. Her friends had to physically hold her up. She was so devastated. And the deputy coroner discouraged her from looking. Colleen and Newell, meanwhile, raced to the hospital. They got pulled over for speeding, but they were sent on their way without a ticket when they explained the situation. When Colleen was finally able to get to the hospital driven by her pastor, she couldn't stand to see the body either. She could not stand the thought of having that be her last memory of her baby. Yeah. Yeah. She had had a friend lose her teenage daughter just recently, and she remembered her friend saying that she could never shake the image of her dead body. So with that in mind, she, she declined. They were given her purse, which was filthy, full of broken things, and the smell of diesel fuel on it was overwhelming. They had found the purse close to Whitney's body, and they the thought that that meant that Whitney's body would inevitably be in a similar, although worse, you know, with just velocity and mass kind of thing, in a similar but worse condition, it was just more than they could stomach. Which, who can blame them? <laughs> not right. me. Although, I'll tell you, someone, but not me. <laughs> Laura's family had a somewhat similar challenge to face, which was seeing Laura's barely living body for the first time. And the team at the hospital really sat them down and talked to them, tried to prepare them. They had warned them about the huge number of tubes and machines keeping her alive. They warned them about the swelling, the bruises, the bandages, the tube coming straight out of her skull. They told them that she would not look like herself. And when they finally took them in, it wasn't quite as bad as they had expected. It was bad. She was swollen. Not severely. She was a little scratched up. Her mom, Susie, said that the tube in her mouth had pulled it to the side at a weird angle. It maybe wasn't as shocking as they'd been prepared for, but it was every bit as hard. Right. They got the usual plastic hospital bag filled with her belongings. It had her purse, her wallet a pair of Converse shoes that her parents hadn't seen before, so they figured she would have been, you know, borrowing maybe one of her roommate's shoes. Most of the stuff was unfamiliar, but the purse was hers, and it had been found against her body, which was 50 feet from the crash. 
Susie started a prayer journal and in it she wrote, to see my sweet sunshine girl hooked up to tubes was almost more than I could do. Over the next few days, the family would learn that Whitney had a broken leg, a broken elbow, a broken clavicle, broken ribs, and most importantly, a serious brain injury from her brain slamming into her skull on impact. And they would later find out, yeah, they would later find out that she had experienced something called brain shearing, which is basically... What the fuck is that? (laughs) Yeah, it sounds really bad, isn't it? It is really bad. It's basically her brain twisting on its brainstem. Mm, No. Uh, Yeah. So at this point, her prognosis was a huge question mark. An unending coma was a very real possibility. Susie wrote in her prayer journal, it's not like you to be so still. Wake up, sweetie. They made sure to have someone with Laura absolutely at all times around the clock. She went through multiple surgeries. She got a tracheotomy that allowed tubes to be taken out of her mouth. Day by day, her family stayed by her side. They told her about the nice spring weather. They told her her hair looked cute. They told her about their days. They were singing her songs. Susie called her her sunshine girl. So they sang her, you are my sunshine. And this is the day that the Lord has made. She had so many friends and family visiting that they had to rotate through in small groups just to keep the crowd size down in Laura's room, which is something that came up a lot because she, with that kind of brain injury, you're supposed to have low stimulation so your brain can heal. So the the need for low stimulation came up a lot in the source materials, but it wasn't super relevant to this, but eh, now and then. So back to Whitney's family who had just lost their daughter. Newell flew home. Colleen and Carly met him at the airport where the three of them held each other and cried. Together, they collected Whitney's belongings from her dorm. Together, they set out on the five-mile drive. I keep saying five-mile. Together, (laughs) they set out on the five-hour drive home. And together, they wrote her obituary, which read, Whitney Aaron Sirik, age 18 of Gaylord, Died in a tragic car accident Wednesday, April 26, 2006, in Marion, Indiana. She was born in Muncie, Indiana, which is my city, to Newell and Colleen Sirik. She lived a wonderful and full but short life. She attended Gaylord Community Schools from kindergarten to 12th grade, where she made many friends and endeared herself to all. She was very active in sports, student government, and the E-Free Youth Group. She was a freshman at Taylor University where she was growing in love and knowledge of her friend and savior, Jesus Christ. She is now living with him in heaven. She is surrounded by, she, she is survived by her parents, Newell and Colleen Sirik, sister Carly, quote unquote, sister Sandra, and many relatives. Funeral services for Whitney will be held on April 30th and 3 p.m. at Gaylord Evangelical Free Church. Visitation will be held on Saturday at the Nelson Funeral Home and so on. And a side note on the quotation mark, sister Sandra, I guess they had a friend who I think her parents moved away. So she was staying in their basement and they were extremely close. But so she was there through a lot of this. But it, it again, it wasn't super relevant to the story. But if you ever hear Sandra, that's why. So in a fog, they planned her funeral, which happened to fall on Whitney's 19th birthday. Oh. So they played a video showing a loop of Whitney's previous 18th birthdays. Can you fucking imagine? No, I Jesus, that detail got me. <laughs> Due to the extent of her injuries, the casket was closed. They were so bogged down in grief, they forgot to pick up Whitney's grandmother to attend the funeral. It was one oh, of those. Shit. Yeah, it was one of those. Oh, I thought I told you. I didn't tell you. I thought you had her. I thought you had her kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And they felt terrible. But when Newell apologized to her, she just said, that's okay, because that's not really Whitney anyway. Right. Which, you know, of course she means in the, that's, that's just 
her body. She's already with God kind of way. Right. So back to Laura and her coma. Laura slowly started to move more. She could squeeze people's hands, move a little bit, although she was still in a coma. And then one day she yawned for the first time. And that was when her family realized that the impact of the accident had affected her teeth, too, because they weren't quite the same as they were before. They seemed pushed up somehow, and it had to have been from being slammed into a fence after being thrown from the van. But they had more to learn about their daughter because she had just gotten back from spring break. And when her hospital gown shifted, they realized her belly button was pierced now and she hadn't told them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it's like it's like when you get the tattoo and you just like cover it up and you just hope <laughs> your parents don't see. I never gave a shit. <laughs> so when Taylor University held a memorial service, Whitney's family made the five hour drive. They had to pass the accident site on the way to the memorial service. Colleen and Newell pulled over. They got out and looked at the five wooden crosses and the destroyed earth. Once they were on campus, they met the man who had identified Whitney on the scene. They thanked him. It was um, like a campus official. They felt guilty about the image that he must carry in his mind from that. They, they kind of hated that for him. And they prayed for peace for him. Laura with her coma, her family attended the service too, praying with and for the other families as the victim's photos flashed on the screen. Whitney's dad sought out Laura's dad and told him that he was praying for Laura and their family. And they were following Laura's sister, Lisa's blog. Um, Lisa had started a blog to just to kind of update people. And that ended up getting a really big following. That happens a lot. I know it really does. And this is kind of before like, you know, tiny tim's journey on facebook or whatever right Um, at this point you had to have a blog but it got it got worldwide attention so after the memorial service all colleen and newell could really do was go home and try to start over there there was just there was nothing else to do they had to reluctantly leave carly at taylor go home and go back to work they just i mean what do you do yeah oh They were not ready to disturb Laura's room, but it felt right to them to let her sister and friends pick what they wanted from her clothes for, you know, sentimental reasons, which turned out to be very meaningful for Laura's friends. And I think her sister probably. So when Laura started waking up, it, it's, it wasn't like you're picturing. And as someone who's been in a coma, comas in general are really not what you're picturing. Yeah, I want to know about this. I, I, You've kind of teased it a little bit about talking <laughs> about it. And I know it's, um, you know, we've mentioned it on air and off about like how difficult it is to kind of talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to. It is. Right from the jump. Thank you for <laughs> doing that. So, I mean, I think that everybody has the same TV show image of waking up from a coma. You know, you're, you're in a coma, you're laying very still, you're you're just completely unconscious. And then one day you open your eyes, look at whoever's at your bedside and say hello or something. It it doesn't quite work that way. I don't think that my husband and I even have the same recollection of when I woke up, per se. It's less like opening your eyes and greeting your loved ones and more like slowly swimming to the surface in murky, confusing water and then drifting back under and then swimming back up. 
you may not end up remembering your quote unquote first wake up. In my case, the moment I remember is waking up. I don't think that was the first wake up per se, but I have little to no memory of anything before that. Another thing that people don't necessarily know about comas is that when you're in one, your body chooses its priorities and it chooses well. You know, its its priorities are your brain and your organs pretty much. Right, right. I'm not, I, I'm not completely sure how this was for Laura because, I mean, the thing is, Laura, our comas were for completely different reasons. And she had a traumatic brain injury. I had some brain stuff. Maybe you would say brain damage, but not a brain injury. So it's it's different. And I don't know exactly how much of, you know, what I experienced, what she experienced were for the same reason, but it chooses its priorities. And I don't know how this was for Laura, but I was very surprised that when I woke up, I couldn't walk at all. Like, oh, at all. wow. Yeah. You, you don't just pop out of bed. Like, you can't walk. I don't know if that's true for everyone, but I have heard it from multiple people. I had lost my fine motor skills completely. I couldn't write at all. They had these little things called Daisy Awards where you could nominate different hospital staff to be recognized. And it was just like these little index card sized pieces of paper with a little Daisy on it. And, you know, who is it? Why do you nominate them? And I think they, they get some kind of recognition if they win the Daisy Award or whatever. And I loved my physical therapist. I wanted to nominate him, but I could not write at all. I tried and like nothing. Couldn't do it. That's going to be equal parts scary and frustrating. Oh my God. I hated it i couldn't operate my phone and i mean you know it's it's modern times it's only so long after you wake up before you're like well let me see what's going on in the internet world which let me tell you what's going on is there's a hashtag guaranteed (laughs) (laughs) we've talked about that before so i i couldn't walk i couldn't write i couldn't operate my phone i had to relearn how to walk don't even get me started on the memory stuff All that to say, waking up from a coma is a whole thing. It's a process. And most people don't know what to expect. And I imagine that has to apply 10 times over when there's physical brain trauma. And the effects of that, you know, I would think must increase as the length of the coma increases. You would assume it would take longer to bounce back and the the skill loss. Well, I don't know if I can say that I think the skill loss would be worse because I could not write like even a little. Right. But I bounced back relatively quickly over a week or so. Laura's lasted three long weeks and then things started to happen. It started with one eye opening, just a crack, very unfocused. And then a word. In a small, raspy voice, she just said hi to her parents. And her dad said, hi, sweetie. With consciousness returning, she was ready to move to a rehabilitation center closer to home in Michigan. Other things that weren't exactly as you might envision, her boyfriend, Aaron, noticed that her eyes somehow seemed more blue, less green than they remembered them being before the accident. Some things were recognizable Laura quirks, like her strong soccer legs and her nervous habits. It was a little unclear how much she recognized the people around her. Sometimes she called her sister Lisa Carly, the name of Whitney's sister. She called Lisa a few different names. She called her, I think, April Stephanie. She called Aaron Hunter. No one even knew who Hunter was. She had kind of a love-hate relationship with her boyfriend Aaron at this point. Sometimes she kissed him, she wanted him around, she told him she loved him. Other times she pushed him away or even hit him. 
and once she asked him to lay down with her, and once she told him to get away from her because he was annoying. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to get a little bit more into this because I think that people don't associate comas with talking, but it's complicated. (laughs) Right. But when she saw her college roommates in a picture, she could identify every one of them. So that was an encouraging sign. And again, this was not abnormal at all. Personally, I recognized the people around me as soon as I was fully conscious. That wasn't really ever an issue for me. But the memory stuff can be really, 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 really weird. Like most of my memory of things before that is completely normal and intact. Forming new short-term memories was an issue for years, but that's a separate thing. But for whatever reason, my coma took a lot of places. Like, there were people's houses that I'd been to many times and did not recognize in the slightest after the coma. There was a library that I went to two or three times a week for at least two or three years before the coma. And when I went back for the first time, I had no memory of ever having been there before whatsoever. It was brand new. Brand new. I had all the memories around it. Like, I was kind of a late driver. I started driving, like, in my early 20s. And it was a really easy drive from the library to my house and back. So I went there constantly, like, multiple times a week to get comfortable driving. I was a very nervous driver for a while. (laughs) And I remembered those facts. But, like, if you had walked me into the library blindfolded and then asked me, like, where's the circulation desk or the bathroom or the exit, I would not have been able to tell you if my life depended on it. Wow. It it was like I'd never been there in my life before. And that I is trippy. Yeah. I have slowly identified I mean, I'm sure there's more. I just haven't gone back to them or no one pointed out to me that I should know them. But I would say there are about a dozen places that were just wiped completely. So random chunks of memory being there while others aren't is pretty typical. The medical staff had fully prepared Laura's family for this, but it was still really unsettling when in therapy with her dad there, the therapist asked Laura to write her name, and she slowly, painstakingly holding the pencil with her fist, wrote Whitney. Oh. Don was unsettled, but the therapist reassured him that this was completely normal. Yeah, and it, it may take years to resolve. And again, back to my coma, I, I was fucked up for about four years after mentally, like there was a lot of brain fog. There was a, I I could not form new short term memories at the fuck all. (laughs) Like it was borderline 50 first dates for about four years. It was, it was intense. So I don't think people realize the length of that right but it was even more chilling when laura's dad was wheeling her back to her room and without moving her lips hardly at all laura said false parents oh yeah (laughs) that's creepy yeah don was a little bit stung i think taking that to mean that laura considered their attention fake or insincere somehow when they had been you know obviously good parents and also they had been by her side for weeks He didn't get it, but he played it cool, and he said, All right, Laura, your false parent's going to take you to your room now. But Susie got it even less. She was starting to have this sinking, gnawing doubt. What if Laura wasn't Laura? (sighs) 
And as that question started to take root, they had some friends come for dinner at the rehab facility. The friends hadn't seen Lori yet, and when they did, they exchanged what was described as a strange look and didn't say much for the rest of the evening. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. When Don and Susie filled in Laura's sister, Lisa, Lisa was maybe a little bit more able to confront this question than they had been, you know, understandably. On her way to Laura's therapy session, she had the unwelcome thought, if it really is Laura, just kind of came to her. She decided to unpack that thought. I mean, obviously, it's devastating no matter what, but if you realize you may have lost your sister versus your child, it's not the same. You know, your brain's not going to have quite the same level of protective stuff blocking that out if it's your sibling. So she had that thought and she decided to unpack it. She considered the pieces of the puzzle and then she tracked down the picture of Whitney, who had died in the crash. She scrutinized Whitney's teeth in the picture and then she knew Laura wasn't Laura. She saw her dad on his way to bed and she asked, hey, how do we know it's really Laura in the hospital, dad? He was rattled by that question, obviously, but he reassured her that there was just no way, you know, she'd been identified. It just, it just didn't make sense. Susie was starting to reach the same conclusion, though. And later, Susie said, you can't deal with that at the moment because this, your daughter who's laying there still needs you. And if it's not your daughter, then you need her parents. She needs her mom and dad right away. Also reaching that horrible conclusion were the friends who'd seen her at the rehab center who sat Don down and addressed their doubt head on. And I would like to mention hundreds of people, literal hundreds had been in and out of her hospital room and they are the only ones who had a concern. Right. But Don, he wasn't there yet. He didn't believe it at all. But he did realize that with other people, everyone, his daughter, his wife, his friends, were starting to have concerns. He understood that it was going to be his job to put this to rest. So he tried to do that. He started making phone calls and asking questions about the accident scene, how things were done, how identification was made. And he was kind of knocked back on his heels by the realization that visual IDs had been made on the scene. And that was it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Lisa, her sister, had always been the one who could, you know, like I said, make the most room in her brain for this possibility. So after therapy one day, she was pushing Laura's wheelchair back to her room and she stopped the wheelchair and she knew she had to confront this. So she knelt down to her sister and she said, you did really well today. I'm very proud of you. You're working really hard to get better. And that makes me very happy. The girl who was supposed to be Laura said, thank you. Lisa said, I just want to ask you one question. Can I ask you a question? The girl nodded and Lisa said, can you tell me your name? And Laura said, Whitney. Oh. And that may seem like a smoking gun, but they had been able to explain this away before when she wrote down the name in therapy. She knew Whitney, kind of. They may have been sitting next to each other in the van. Brain injury survivors have been known to misidentify themselves. So, I mean, that's not great, but it's not, it's not a smoking gun. Right. But Lisa had another question that Whitney would know, but Laura wouldn't because they weren't friends. I mean, they certainly weren't enemies, but they just didn't really know each other. They were most acquaintances. Lisa had another question and it was, what are your parents' names? The girl said Sirak. 
<gasps> Lisa asked about their first names and she said Newell and Colleen. Oh. And why would Laura know that? She wouldn't. They no. they just didn't know each other well enough. So Lisa knew. She knew. This wasn't Laura. She didn't react in the moment because she knew how fucked up that would be for this girl. Right. So she just said, you're doing so well. Do you want to go back to your room? Whitney nodded and she said, here we go. And wheeled her back to her room. There would be time for her grief later. But what a fucking sweetheart. I know, right? Once the f- whole family understood this, there were two really heavy facts. One, their daughter had been dead for five weeks. And two, this woman had parents who needed to hear about their own child's resurrection. Colleen and Newell's phone rang at 2 a.m. Carly was home. I don't really know why. I don't know if this is a time for break. I don't know. I want to say this was Memorial Day. I'm probably going to get a bad review for not knowing, but here we go. (laughs) Carly was home. Newell was on a church trip in the woods. He was chaperoning a high school trip. It had been like five weeks since their daughter had died. And this time it was the exact same duo who had called her five weeks ago, the coroner and the chaplain. The coroner told her that the chaplain was monitoring the car, monitoring the call, which I still think is kind of a weird way to put that, but I don't know. Thank God I've never had to find out. They asked Colleen if she was alone, and she told them that Carly was there and asleep, and they told her to go get Carly. They asked her to get Carly and have her listen in. And when she woke Carly and handed her the extension, I miss extensions, they <laughs> said, can, can you imagine just, like, picking up a phone and being on somebody else's call now? I know. Now it's, like, just speakerphone, but then if you don't want people to hear, then you're just screwed. Well, I mean, yeah, you could do the merge in. That's fucking hard, though. It is hard. And who does that? I don't don't even know how to do it. I mean, I guess I could figure it out. But anyway, so they gave Carly the other phone and then, you know, they were all on the call. And they said, we now know that the accident survivor identified as Laura Van Ryan is not, in fact, Laura. This fact was confirmed earlier this evening through her dental records. We have reason to believe that your daughter, Whitney, may be alive. Oh, how would you react? (laughs) I would throw up. I would barf everywhere. That's usually my go-to when big stuff happens. That's fair. Initially, Colleen, this is horrifying. She was still half asleep, and she thought they meant that Whitney had been buried alive. Oh, no. Because she heard, we have reason to believe that your daughter, Whitney, may be alive. Yeah, I can see how you get that mixed up if you're a little drowsy. Yeah. That's where her mind went. And as she understood what they were saying, Colleen was just numb. This was just pain stalked on top of pain. She knew it wasn't true. She had been through the hell of burying Whitney already. But now something, some wires had been crossed and it apparently fell to her to settle this question, which is bullshit. It was one more grim responsibility in a unending line of grim responsibilities. The coroner asked them to get Whitney's dental records and head to the rehab center in Grand Rapids. She agreed. She hung up. Carly was protective and Carly was livid. She was beyond positive that this was a scam or a hoax or a prank or something. Because there are people out there that do this oh, there, shit. Of course there are. So Absolutely. many people that do yeah. this shit. I mean, they had literally attended her funeral. Like they, they had buried her. She told Colleen, whoever this is, I don't know why they're doing this, but this isn't real. 
It made no sense. It was cruel. One of Whitney's close friends had visited Laura in the hospital and she would have recognized her. Colleen called Newell and filled him in and Carly got on the phone and said, Dad, don't you believe it for a second? He reassured Carly that he didn't believe it at all. They checked the number that they'd been called from and they confirmed that it was the hospital, but Carly was still unconvinced. I mean, anybody can walk into the hospital and make a call. Colleen had no idea how to process this information, so she did the only thing she could think to do, which was calling her pastor, Jim, again, who had been incredibly there for them throughout this. She explained the situation and asked if he could look into the veracity for her. And remember, this is the absolute middle of the night. And I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit jealous about having that kind of relationship with your pastor. Right. Just I, yeah. I mean, we've looked for churches and it just, I, I can't imagine getting to the point that it would be the middle of the night and you have this terrifying, overwhelming, confusing thing happen. And you're just like, you know what? I'm going to call my pastor and he's going to figure this out for me. And he does like, that's, I mean, that's beautiful. It is beautiful. I can't really imagine that. So she explained it. She asked him if he could look into it. And then in a few minutes, he called her and he told her that they needed to go on another road trip. None of them wanted anything to do with this, least of all Carly. But they had to. Colleen called their dentist at 2 a.m. The dentist answered and agreed to get the dental records pulled the in the middle of the night. answered the yeah. phone in the middle what, of the night, too? What kind of community is this? I'm so jealous. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Did they live on a compound or something? What the fuck? <laughs> Golly, so, I bet they yeah. have internet. They don't even have to hotspot. <laughs> so not only did they reach the dentist, but the dentist was like, yes, I'll pull them right now. Wow. Yeah. So they got the dental records in the middle of the night, and then they got in their car, and they drove to the rehab center. Carly was against the whole thing, but Colleen didn't want to go without Carly, so Carly came. Colleen was calm and practical. She told Carly that she should pack extra clothes just in case it was Whitney, and they needed to stay, which just pissed Carly off that much more. When she learned in the car that Laura's family had left the rehab facility after finding out even Carly started to entertain the possibility because Laura's family had been beyond dedicated. They never left her side. And with hours to drive and talk and think, they slowly unpacked the what if possibility. They were scared of what they would see when they got there. They assumed the girl in the rehab center must be in terrible shape if this kind of mix up was even possible. Right. They got there just as the sun came up and they were met by staff waiting for them at the door. They were taken to her room where they saw a young woman laying in bed. And as soon as they saw their, her face, all of their doubts dissipated. It was Whitney. Holy shit. They swarmed her, screaming and crying, hugging her. They kept repeating Whitney, Whitney, and Whitney nodded her head every time as much as her neck brace would allow. Joyous reunion or not, it was still a neuro unit and they were only briefly allowed in the room. Colleen called Newell and said, Newell, I'm standing here and it's Whitney. Newell fell to the ground. He told her, for some reason, brains are so weird. He told her to hang up the phone so he could call her instead of her having called him because it just felt unreal. Like a dream or a delusion. I don't know if he thought maybe it was some kind of sophisticated prank. Right. So he made her hang up and then he called her and he asked her about Whitney's condition. And Colleen told her she was pretty okay. I mean, she definitely wasn't, you know, on the verge of dying or anything. She wasn't horribly disfigured. So Newell told the kids he was chaperoning what had happened and explained that he needed to cut their trip a day short 
which they were thrilled to do. They all loaded back in the church van within an hour, and the medical staff noted it in her chart, Laura Van Ryn dot dot dot, Whitney Sirak dot dot dot, mistaken identity. So, Laura's family at this point was filled with anxiety about what Whitney's family would think about them. Like, they themselves were wondering how they could have not known. So, I mean, definitely the other family would be. Right. Would they feel like, you know, their ignorance had kept their child from them for five long weeks and put them through the living hell of grieving for her? They'd met before, but this was completely different. (laughs) But that couldn't have been further from the truth. As Newell was driving the 14 hours home, Susie and Don met with Colleen and encountered nothing but empathy. Having her daughter back in this unexpected way didn't erase the fact that Colleen had gone through the entire process of losing, burying, and mourning her child. And she knew now Laura's parents were doing the same. They hugged. Laura's family told Whitney's family that they were so happy for them. Whitney's family told Laura's family that they were so sorry. Newell finally arrived after driving the 14 hours straight through to find Whitney holding out her arms to him. Laura's sister Lisa wrote in her blog, We have some hard news to share with you today. Our hearts are aching as we have learned that the young woman we've been taking care of over the past five weeks has not been our dear Laura, but instead a fellow Taylor student of hers, Whitney Sirak. It is a sorrow and a joy for us to learn of this turn of events. For us, we will mourn Laura's going home and greatly miss her compassionate heart and sweetness while knowing she is safe and with her king forever. We rejoice with the Syrax that they have more time on this earth with their daughter, sister, and loved one. Thanks again for the support you've been. Please continue your prayers. Our God is good and continues to be our help, our guide, our comfort. We love you, sweets. Oh, the sweets. Yeah, that got me too. Unsurprisingly, the media got a hold of the story, lost their minds. That was super upsetting for Laura's family. I don't think it was necessarily unexpected given the following of Lisa's blog, but it was still just really freaking hard. Right. They did. Yeah. It was hard for Whitney's family to explain how they hadn't realized, but it basically came down to this. They weren't looking for this. They said, it's like those are pieces to a puzzle we didn't even know existed. We didn't know there was a puzzle. We didn't know we were supposed to be putting together a puzzle. Her sister Laura said, you also have to consider our emotional, her her sister Lisa said, also you have to consider our emotional state as, you know, you're just hydroplaning through this, which I thought was such a cool phrase. Yeah. Right? Maybe cool is the very wrong word, but I just, I liked that phrase. They did an interview with Matt Lauer, and when he asked Whitney's parents if they understood how it could have happened for five weeks, Newell said, no, I don't think I totally understand how it could happen. I mean, we look back and we can see that could have been picked up on or we could have picked up on that. But when you're in the moment, it doesn't even occur to you. We all chose the different paths that we chose not to look at the body. And, you know, they chose to believe what was told to them. And we respect that. And we're just so thankful for what they did for Whitney. Matt Lauer acknowledged how guilty Don and Susie felt. And Newell said, you know, those five weeks were hard. They were very, very hard. But they should feel no guilt whatsoever. I know that they loved her every bit as much as they would have their own daughter. And that in itself was just huge. The Matt Lauer interview said, For nearly two years, they protected each other's privacy, never speaking publicly about what happened. But they did end up co-authoring the book that most of this information came from, which is a good segue to mention that I got... 95% of the information in this from the book called Mistaken Identity, which is 
wonderful and thorough and was co-authored by the girls' families and also the Matt Lauer interview, which was extremely dense. So I will put that information in the show notes, but I mean, I pulled very heavily from those, so I definitely want to mention that. So, okay, the epilogue. It's a coma, so it's complicated. Right. It's always fucking complicated with a coma. Here's the kicker. Whitney herself didn't really remember those five weeks, like at all. She remembers working the banquet and getting pizza afterwards. Her when I woke up moment, despite all that that was going on, she was in therapy. She was throwing balls. She was writing her name. She was trying to walk. She was, she she was telling her boyfriend to get away. He was annoying. Her when I woke up moment was with her actual mother crying on her bedside. Wow. Yeah, she doesn't remember her time with Laura's family, but it sounds like she has a when I woke up moment. Like, I have a when I woke up moment. I don't think it meshes with anyone around me's perception of when I woke up. Right. But, I mean, in my head, it's when I woke up. And in her head, she woke up with her mom. That's bananas. Yeah, she doesn't remember that time with Laura's family. In an interview, she settled the question of why she kept calling Aaron Hunter, which no one could figure out. Hunter was her dog. <laughs> her golden retriever. Yeah. And I i mean, honestly, I think that says a lot. Because, okay, let me try to explain comas <laughs> to the world. Have you ever, do you talk in your sleep ever at all? I have. Okay. Have you ever had that experience where you're in that like weird in-between state Mm -hmm. and you're talking in your sleep and then you wake up in just a certain way where you know you were talking in your sleep? Yes. And you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. And you might like kind of remember what you said and you might briefly sort of remember the context, but like it dissipates pretty fast. But there's that period where you're like, what the, what the fuck? What was I just saying? And honestly... Like, you know that in that state, you would have theoretically been able to talk, you would have been able to do some muscle memory tasks, but like, nobody was really home in your brain. And for me, that's what waking up from a coma feels like. It doesn't feel like waking up from a restful nap. It feels like surfacing from water and nonsense things slowly become rational. And that in-between part, it's just like a fever dream. It's so weird. Whitney said that she had only met Laura a few times and she did not see similarities in their personalities. She didn't really think they looked similar. And after the dust had settled, she watched a video of her own funeral. And that was how she found out that her family thought she was bad at sports. Oh, yeah. Oh, can yeah. you imagine? No, I mean, it was mostly, you know, good stuff. Like, she was loved. Everybody was very sad, but... Uh, I think there was something written down that said she may not have been the best player, but she made everyone else feel like she was. They were. <laughs> and I I think she, people had made some jokes about her lack of sporting ability. And I mean, she was pretty involved in sports. Wow. So she watched a video and found that out. She found out, you know, a couple other little lighthearted roasts that she didn't anticipate. So... I feel like you have to roast a little bit at funerals. Yeah, but you're really not expecting the person to watch it. Right. (laughs) I'm going to roast you so bad at your funeral. Oh, I hope so. It's going to be bad. And then I'm going to take a video just in case. 
So, okay, this next part, it's hard. It's it's really hard. So at one point, oh, at one point, Whitney got it into her head that it was all a nightmare. She just suddenly got the idea that she was asleep in her college dorm. None of this was real. She was having a dream and she was super pissed at her college roommate for not waking her up. And I struggled with that feeling for about a month. And it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And... Mm-hmm. How's that, like, present? Like, are you angry? I, I just think of, like, with Alzheimer's. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure that depends person by person. In in her case, she was very sad, very, I think, angry and extremely panicky. In my case, it was more of, like, a mild panic slash intense disorientation. For me, it was like, you know, that movie trope? Where it's like you're doing something and you're just, you know, you're you're living your life. Maybe things are just a little bit off. And then you like look at a dry erase board. You need to wake up. It says like written or something. Like, you know, that movie mm-hmm. trope. It feels like that for a long time. <laughs> because wow. you've spent a long time in that surfacing from water feeling where something starts to slowly come into focus and become rational. And then you lose it again. And there was this feeling of this isn't real. Like this, this isn't real. I know it's not. Something about this feels off. Something is trying to pull me out of the stream. This, this isn't real. And honestly, I still get it once in a while. (laughs) That's some like multiverse shit. It really is. But it was really a whole thing for Whitney. They had to call her college roommate and have her roommate explain, no, you're not sleeping. This is real. This really happened. And for some reason, Whitney was disoriented during this. And she thought that people were going to think that she had killed Laura. That's not right. I didn't kill anybody. That's wrong. That's that's not true. Blah, blah, blah. And her family was like, honey, no, nobody thinks that. And then she was just like, this isn't real. This is a nightmare. This is not real. You have to wake me up. You were being so mean not waking me up. You have to wake me up. So they called her roommate and her roommate was like, no, you know, if this if this was a nightmare, would we be talking on the phone? But Whitney was still logical enough to be like, yes, if that's what I was dreaming. Right. And her her boyfriend squeezed her arm and was like, would you feel me squeezing your arm if this was a dream? And she's like, yes, if I dreamed it. And like that combination of lucidity and disorientation is very distinctive and very familiar to me. And it is the most topsy-turvy, terrifying feeling. It's so upsetting. Yeah. So I think if I remember correctly, she eventually actually had to be sedated to, to come out of that one. But like, I did not know what was reality and what was not for a month, I would say. Jeez. And I mean, there's also ICU delirium, which is a whole other conversation. I mean, now and then I just still have this like absolutely knocks me on my ass feeling of this is a dream. This isn't real. I'm still, I'm still in the coma. I'm trying to surface. Something is trying to pull me up. This isn't real. And it doesn't last long and I can shake it off now, but I don't know that it ever goes away. So, Then there was college. She was able to go back to college with a reduced course load after a couple months. And um, I think she was only taking six credit hours. And like one of the classes was a golf course and she was a golf class. And well, 
<laughs> I mean golf course like a college course. But right. I, really like <laughs> I was like, that's not right. Wait, that is right. Um, one of them it's was a golf, golf course course. Yeah, golf course course. It was like um, six credit hours that she was taking. She was still doing like tons of therapy, but she kind of had a little bit of a breakdown she got tested as far as like how she was doing mentally and it said that she was functioning at an eighth grade level which considering is great but she was back living on campus at this point and was like i am living on campus and i'm functioning at an eighth grade level and she had you know special assistance with the classes she only had six credit hours she couldn't do it she couldn't keep up with it and that Hit me in the gut, too, because that's why I dropped out of college. (laughs) And I dropped out mm, two or three years after the coma. I just, I couldn't do it. couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do it. I I would go. Not for lack of trying. No, absolutely not. No, but the work that it used to take me to get an A, suddenly it took double that work to get a C minus. And I, like, I would go to a lecture and it was just gone. It was just gone. And it it wasn't a matter of, you know, being burnt out on college or something like that. I was a really, really, really good student before. And I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't form new memories. I couldn't hold on to anything. I still had a lot of brain fog. I couldn't process things the same way. My grades were plummeting. Like my GPA had been like a 3.8. I'd been in college for five years full time like undergrad. And the only reason I hadn't already graduated is because I wasn't taking summer classes. So it was very close to graduation and I just could not fucking do it anymore. And I dropped out like a semester and a half before graduation. Do you still have, I feel like with student loans and stuff, if you have a situation like this, it needs to like, Oh, don't get me started. (laughs) No, but do you get what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. It should just wipe it like, shoop, 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 shoop. So f- God bless it. I wish I don't even want to talk about student loans. So Whitney had herself a whole breakdown about this and she kept calling her parents and she was like, I'm not me anymore. I can't do this anymore. I can't keep up. I'm not funny anymore, which I also felt that way for a while. You just you can't, you can't keep up with the conversation enough to get humor. And she was like, I'm operating in an eighth grade level and I'm I'm trying to be in college. I can't. I have to come home. And her family kept saying, you know, can you give it a couple more weeks? Can you can you give it a month or whatever? And she kept saying, I guess I can try. And she did make it through and then she she got tested again for her functionality level and she ended up being exactly where she was supposed to be. She was at more in college level. So I don't know I guess I don't know anything really about this test, so I don't know if it's like, you know, super accurate. Like, yeah, there you are, you're caught up, and now you're not going to have these issues anymore. If any of it was just sort of like a confidence thing, I don't know. I I have no idea. Either she got caught up or getting better results, you know, gave her the confidence that she needed. But she, she was eventually able to stay, but that, I'm not me anymore, I can't do this breakdown, hit me in the gut, let me tell you. So... The real Laura was exhumed and relocated to a cemetery near her own family. The trucker who hit the Taylor University van pled guilty to criminal negligence. Neither of the families filed any lawsuits. None of the families, I don't think. Well, actually, I don't know if if the families of any of the other victims did or not. 
but neither of these families filed any lawsuits. He was sentenced to four years. He served one year before being released. Four years after the accident, <laughs> Whitney got married in the same church where her funeral happened. <laughs> <laughs> she has three kids now, and she appears to still be married to her husband. Aww. And that is the devastating story <laughs> of... That's the happiest, saddest shit I've ever heard. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fuck. I can't even imagine. I'm glad you did this one. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, this was a listener request. Was this a TikTok listener? Instagram. Instagram. Okay. Listen. Listen. Okay. I told you, they come to my side of the rainbow. Listen. I know. Sorry. I'm sorry. Well, Um, I mean, when I I have her name. Good. What is it? Because when I see the request, I'm usually pretty good about writing it down if I'm going to cover it so I can shout them out. But I I don't think I ever saw this one. You just sent it to me. And I was like, yes, I'm abandoning my plane crash for the fourth week in a row. <laughs> and I'm going to change my whole story. <laughs> well, for just to read it phonetically, it would be Kylie Anner. It's uh, K-Y-L-E-I-G-H-A-N-N-R. But she sent it to us, and I was like, holy shit. I just did a quick Google search, and I was like, holy shit, that's bananas. Yeah, and, I uh, remember hearing about this you. when it happened. Yeah, because it's, it's pretty local to me. They're actually, I mean, obviously I mentioned, but they're actually from Michigan, and I'm from Indiana, but the accident happened in Indiana. And um, one of them was born in the city I live in now, and yeah, there's a lot of geographical overlap. Taylor University is super close to where I live now. So... Yeah, thank you for that suggestion. That turned out to be really intense. I do remember that when it happened, but when it happened was 18 and had my head pretty far up my ass. So uh, I don't remember it that well. And I was very interested to dig into that. What a sad fucking story. Uh, We do have some more Patreon shout outs too. Woohoo! I pulled up some extra, uh, I have some extra Hot Springs postcards. Um, so for Sydney Pigman, I know you just, um, started this week. I'm going to send you one anyways. It's going to be Aww. postmarked from Louisiana, but I mean, I guess that's kind of cool because you'll have like the only one that's postmarked from Louisiana instead of Arkansas. Still, still, <laughs> right? special and then we have hattie it just says hattie it's a beautiful name i love that it is beautiful i love it and uh catherine mcdowell yay thank you so much thank you so 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 much we should be having uh our second full-length episode here in the next couple weeks so stay tuned for that um if you haven't gotten your stickers they will be there very very shortly and the post, even though with the um, hurricane stuff, has been pretty all right here. No, oh, that's nice. Yeah, I just got um, my Aunt Veda. Hi, Aunt Veda. Just sent me um, the Boys on the Track book, so I'm really excited. It showed up uh, yesterday. So I'm receiving mail, so I assume mail can go out as well. That's wonderful. You ready for some disaster relief? Who's going first? You go first. I'll go first. Okay. So my thing is a little 
Japanese candy making DIY kit <laughs> oh. of all things. Yeah. I had a friend recommend this to me this week who is just kind of into that old hands-on crafts kind of thing and thought that Adelaide might like it. And it like it's a Japanese candy kit thing. We got one that is meant to look like donuts. There's like sushi, some kind of gummies. There's something that kind of looks like ice cream cones. And it's just this little, you know, it takes 15 minutes and you can do it with your kid. And I did it with Adelaide today and she loved it. So I ordered her another one on Amazon. Oh, that sounds so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. We, we, um, we found it at Meyer, And like I said, we got the donut one. And I think it was the highlight of her day. <laughs> And yeah, so now we've got the ice cream one. Oh, that's so cute. That sounds right up my alley. I would not share with my children, though. <laughs> it's called Poppin' Cookin' Kits. Poppin' Cookin' Kits. Poppin' Cookin' Kits. And they're like five or six bucks, depending on where you get it. They're a little more expensive on Amazon. I think it was, I don't know, I want to say three or four dollars at Meyer, maybe. And I think it was like six dollars on Amazon, but they only had the donuts at our Meyer, and I don't really want to drive to another city for it, so I'll pay the extra two bucks. But yeah, they're super fun. Nice. Nice. Yeah. What's yours? Um, well, I'm still like trying to dig my way through these hurricane snacks. So <laughs> um have you ever had uh, the blue wasa or the blue diamond almonds? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. They're so good. But they come in different flavors, don't they? Yes. And yeah, there's a wasabi I, one that is. Yeah, I would never. You should. Do you no, like spicy? No, fuck no. Do I seem like I like spicy? <sighs> You're such a baby. I know. I the know. wasabi ones are so good. No, we, we usually buy them like my grocery days are Wednesday. Um, I usually buy them every week. Cody's so cute. Before we got divorced, he would say, oh, I love Wednesdays because it's Wasabi Almond Day. That was smooth. Yeah. So, no, that's that's my disaster relief. I'm glad you can reminisce on the good times before you're divorced. <laughs> well, thanks. I hate it, but I'm sure someone will love it. I think, I don't think they make it anymore, but I could be super wrong. I think they used to make one that was like toffee almost it was like a candied kind of thing and it was so yummy there's the honey one no it's not the honey one hmm. no i don't know i haven't seen it in a long time they're so good yeah yeah so i don't know i think because my electricity has been in and out in and out so i just don't trust a big grocery um trip yet and uh i really want some ice cream yeah it's the simple things. I miss that you miss in a hurricane. Yeah. I miss clear water, Wi-Fi. Do you know <laughs> Wi-Fi was invented in 1997? Really? Seems really young, right? Yeah, no, it's, I don't I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why I used <laughs> my data to look that up, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag priorities. Yes. Hurricanes are weird. So, on that note, I am going to go to bed because I still have a lot of cleanup to do. Uh, how far are you? Is it ever going to end? 
My tree looks like a big penis, <laughs> like sticking out with this little two Pics bushy or it didn't happen. Two little bushy balls. I don't believe you. I restacked the fence post. They still haven't picked it up. The whole organizing your debris is a whole art form. There's lots of do's and don'ts, and you got to make sure that, you know, you're doing it right. You don't want your neighbors to look at you weird. I got my lawn mowed. We mowed Good. the lawn. We're not trash neighbors. Eh, eh, you are. Visually. In your, sp- in, in your soul. Visually, we are not trash neighbors. I mean, physically I am, but. Yeah, like mentally you definitely are. Totally. <laughs> but no, it's good. It just, it's a lot. It's a lot. There's just, shingles are a pain in the ass to pick up. Ooh. You can't really do much with them. You don't want to bag them up. You can't put them in your dumpster because then they get too heavy. And, you know, all of a sudden there's like a neighborhood of trash cans like dumped out all over the place. It's a mess. It's an art form. It is an art form. So what are you supposed to do with your shingles? You're just supposed to throw them in a big old pile. And then they come by with a little thing, like a big bulk waist up like claw thing like the games and pick it up it's, okay it's really interesting um i haven't seen the hurricane version of it but once a month they come with those little claw things and pick it up and it's really fun to watch you have that much shingle loss no just like bulk waste trash here oh, okay. tra- trash uh i don't i'm not sure if it's all louisiana i think it's all louisiana our trash is in our water bill so it just like there's not Every, I feel like every state I've lived in, like, trash, you just had to hire your trash out separately. Here, it's like, no. Like, everybody yeah, has. combined for us, too. Everybody has trash. It should be. It should be. Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird thought. Yeah. All right. Go to bed. I'm going to go to bed, too. All right. I've been up for, like, 22 hours now. Hopefully, I'll have internet this week, and next recording will go a little smoothly. But, yeah. Sweet dreams or no dreams. Sweet internet or no internet. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Horrible Ghouls. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to share your personal MarkSafe moment, you can send it to us at MarkSafePodcast at gmail.com. Please give our podcast a rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your buddies about us, too. That goes a long way. If you want to further elevate your support, check out our MarkSafe Patreon page, where we have shoutouts, goodies, and some bonus content in the works. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again, and as always, stay safe.